WDBM East Lansing. FM. The Impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And tonight on Impact Exposure, the whole hour is dedicated to Detroit and the many efforts going on to revitalize the city, including urban farming to public art. But before we get to the first interview of the night, here is a story written by an MSU grad about Michigan's largest city. For the Michigan Storytelling segment, I'm Max Katsarelles, reading Why Detroit? Detroit's dead. The old Detroit, that is. Sure. There's still parts of old Detroit that live on, like Hart Plaza, Greektown, and Eastern Market. But the Detroit old Detroiters once knew is gone. Their neighborhoods aren't so wonderful. Local grocers don't exist. Downtown? More like a ghost town. Quaint trolleys meandering across the city? <laughs> Those days were over 50 years ago. Detroit will never be that city again. Instead of trying to reclaim and recreate the past, Detroit has a unique opportunity. It can redefine and recreate the future of major American cities. The city's trying. There are attempts at urban farming. There's MakeLoveLand.com, where people can buy Detroit property online by the square inch and then decide how to use the space. Maker City Fair was just held celebrating creators and inventors from across the country. Detroit may be downsizing and tearing down abandoned neighborhoods, but it is growing in ideas and ingenuity. I want to know why the people running the city want to make it like old Detroit. Why does Detroit need to be like other major cities? More importantly, how is a major city even defined? Dirt, crime, and tall buildings? Cramped sidewalks, traffic delays, subways, and taxis? Major cities typically have a population of 100,000 people or more. They tend to be big and overwhelming. They're filled with the rich and poor, people without homes, and people from all over the world. There was an article in the New York Times about the city of Maywood in California. It may not be a major hub per se, but it's handling problems in a novel way for a city. Outsourcing. Budget gaps and little revenue led this small town to make a drastic, controversial change, which appears to be working. Detroit needs to do something drastic and controversial, because the traditional approaches have failed over and over and over again. Change happens through quick, decisive action, not slow and tedious month-long city council voting. There's too much talk of this idea, that idea, or why someone's to blame for the city's faults. We can't make our schools better because of this guy. We can't rebuild the roads because of that lady. There's not enough action because all people do is talk, argue, and use the word can't. Maybe they should just ask for help. Detroit should let suburban cities buy burnt-out neighborhoods to redevelop for their own constituents' use. Think Camp Dearborn in Milford. In 1947, the city of Dearborn bought property in Milford. They developed into a gorgeous park with a beach and 18-hole golf course. Anyone can access this park, but unless you're a resident of Dearborn, you have to pay. Detroit should create a citywide Wi-Fi network that's so stable, web startups would be dumb not to set up shop in downtown. The city could partner with a television network and start a reality show with the world's greatest urban planners as contestants competing to create the most ingenious ways to save Detroit. The city should create an advertising campaign, touting itself as a city going extinct. 
so they can attract people to visit before it disappears. Michigan public schools should be required to take field trips to downtown Detroit. There's the DIA, Wayne State University, Fox Theater, and the Wright Museum of African American History, just to name a few. Downtown Detroit hotels should offer a free room to anyone from out of state for one night only. In exchange for what I assume would be a mass migration to the city, restaurants and businesses could siphon off a small percentage of their income to their hotels in return for the influx of visitors. What if Detroit erased the line between city and brand? From 1949 to 1961, General Motors hosted a Motorama every year in New York City, showcasing their latest cars. Detroit could be the first city ever to take a nationwide tour, and they could, they could call it City-Rama. Featuring its greatest people and companies, City-Rama would tell the culture of Detroit through companies like Better Made, Hungry Howie's, or McClure's Pickles, people like Eminem, Aretha Franklin, or Jeff Daniels. It is about time Detroit recognizes its glory days are long faded away. Why does yesterday's Detroit continue to define the way people hope to shape Detroit in the future? That thinking doesn't work anymore. There's been enough talk. It's time to adapt. It's time to change. It's time to do. And that was MSU grad Max Cazzarellis with his story called Why Detroit. And this hour of impact exposure brought to you, I'm your host, Emily Fox. This whole hour is dedicated to ideas and positivity coming out of Michigan's largest city right now. And in the studio is a group called Live Work Detroit and that is trying to bring recent grads to Michigan's largest city as well. Um, well, and they want to bring them there to live and work. So welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you. So first off, can you introduce yourselves? We have one person on the phone, um, Michelle, and one person in the studio, Tangi. Can you introduce yourselves and, and what you guys do? Hi, my name is Tangie Jones, and I am with the Workforce Development Agency for the state of Michigan, and I'm a project coordinator um, working around college relations for the Live Work Detroit program. Hi, and I'm Michelle Elder. I'm the program manager um, overseeing Live Work Detroit. Um, and Tangie and I have been working very closely with our team and um, local stakeholders of the community to help bring young people um, uh, to downtown Detroit and also to help them um, meet employers that are hiring. So you guys have an event coming up um, later this month. Can you guys talk a bit, little bit about that? Um, yes, we have an event coming up very soon on September 28th, and that event is to connect um, employers that are eager to hire our Michigan college graduates and to our college graduates and sort of to unveil the city for our college graduates and let them know that Detroit is one of the hottest places to live, work, and have fun. And I noticed there has been a lot of efforts of bringing people to Detroit, and, and I keep reading articles saying that, that, that Detroit is growing a young community. There's a lot of younger people moving there and a lot of artists moving there as well. And there's a lot of efforts going on. Um, you guys are with Live Work Detroit. I've heard of um, Live Midtown, Live Downtown incentives, where um, businesses that, that are in Detroit are trying to give incentives to those um, that work for them to live in Detroit, as well as... Um, there's 11, 11, 11, where um, they want to 
bring in 1,100 new Detroit residents by November 11th and 2011. So a lot of different things are going on. And also, um, I know this past summer, um, Somerset Mall, um, there's a an extension there that is um, that popped up in, in downtown as well as a Whole Foods market as well. So a lot of d- new things are going on. Can you talk about where Detroit was maybe five years ago to where it is now and where would you like it to be? Well, Emily, I think you hit it on the nose there. And the um, speaker that just went right before us, I really enjoyed his piece too because um, some of the locations that he referenced to it's just the tip of the iceberg of what Detroit has to offer young people. Um, and it's such a dynamic place. It's not a blank slate for somebody to come in and start over. There's a lot of amazing things happening um, over the past five years. Um, it's gone it's already gone through a renaissance and it continues to change by the minute. It's in fact really hard to keep up with all the um, amazing people and organizations that have been involved with um, bringing Detroit to where it is now. Um, It did five years ago, it did come with challenges with the real estate market. That's just the reality of of all real estate across the country. Um, But we are seeing a tremendous opportunity um, in living and working in downtown with um, all of the live downtown incentives that you referenced to. Employers see the value in creating and investing in that downtown urban environment. Um, And where I would like to see Detroit in, in the future is that I wish Live Work Detroit would not need to be a program. Um, and, and I see that in the very near future. Um, as we do bring more talent into the city, there is a mass movement, like you said, especially in the arts community. Um, there's a lot of great things happening downtown. Um, the Detroit Creative Corridor just opened uh, this year, um, so it's very reflective of what's going on in downtown, and um, a, a part of our program is to provide the opportunity for young talent to discover what is available to them in Detroit. So I'm curious, on the, this event on September 28, you're going to bring a lot of um, recent college grads into Detroit to kind of network. Um, so talk about some of the employers in Detroit that are hiring right now. Um, Well, I think what we can talk about is sort of how that day will look, and it will kind of give you an idea of some of the things that we've done at the first event up to this event. Um, We're going to kick off that day at 2 o'clock, and we're going to get people registered um, for the event, and that's going to be at the Fillmore Theater. And then after that, we're going to sort of start our career networking with employers at about 2.30 that day. And people can, um, if you need more information about some of the employers that are going to be there, michiganadvantage.org will have that information listed on it. Um, We'll have some guest speakers that will be at the event to kind of get people going for the day and excited about being in Detroit. In the past, we've had Dan Gilbert from Quicken Loans and Peter Carmanos from CompuWare. So we have some really exciting speakers lined up, and we'll keep that a little secret for um, those who want to attend. And then um, we're going to have a sneak peek of Detroit bus tour, and it's really a great tour to give people an idea of what Detroit has to offer you know, to get um, people out to those places that um, was was talked about in the previous piece that you just played. Um, And then about 5.30, we are going to start our tour of the Cranes Detroit House Party. 
And that's going to be at the Moisha House, the Lafayette House, and the in Washington Square. So students will have an opportunity to get a look at all those different places. And the evening's going to end actually at the Rooster Tail, and it's going to be a strolling cocktail dinner. So um, students will have the opportunity to actually meet other young professionals, talk to them about the jobs that they have there in Detroit, and really get an idea of what it's like to live, work, and play in Detroit. So, Michelle, I have a question for you. The latest census data showed that Detroit's population declined by 25%. Um, and I know that, like, we, like we've been talking about, there's a lot of efforts going on right now to bring more people back in Detroit, especially young people. So where do you see Detroit's population looking like five years from now? Well, um, first, some of the census information, especially for urban centers, um, they tend not to reflect the true population in downtowns um, because of the way that they track and um, respondents sending in their information about household um, population and income and things like that. So I don't think that that's a true measure of the population in downtown. Um, and it doesn't track um, a lot of the, for instance, the immigration population or um, the renter population that, you know, those are highly mobile individuals. And we focus, Livermore Detroit focuses on um, young professionals in this area because that is a demographic that is leaving the state. And we, we realize that that is just the reality. Um, but the purpose of our program is to educate and provide the opportunity for um, this age demographic to discover what Detroit has to offer and for entrepreneurs and um, artists and creatives and as well as IT and engineering all across the board. These industries are growing and our employers need to fill these employment positions in Detroit. And so that our, our focus of Live Work Detroit is not only to make those um, place connections for the students, but to also um, connect them with employers and opportunities um, for entrepreneurship. Well, for Impact Exposure, in the studio is Tangie Jones, and on the phone is Michelle Elder there with Live Work Detroit. Live Work Detroit is putting on an event on September 28th to bring young people to the Motor City. For more information, you can go to www.michiganadvantage.org backslash Live Work Detroit. Michelle and Tangie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having us. And up next, um, again, this whole hour um, of impact exposure is dedicated um, to efforts going on in Detroit right now and ideas to help revitalize the Motor City. And up next is a Michigan storytelling segment I did with uh, Detroit Free Press writer John Gallagher about his book titled Reimaging Detroit, Opportunities for Redefining an American City. So give us a little intro to what is this book about? Well, I, I've been a reporter for the Detroit Free Press for going on uh, 25 years now, covering urban redevelopment. And for a long time, that meant covering all the big uh, sort of showcase projects, the Renaissance Center, the stadiums, the casinos. And um, in the last few years, uh, I and, and a bunch of other people have come to see that it really it's more about um, dealing with vacant land, that, that Detroit and many other cities, St. Louis, Cleveland, Flint, Saginaw, were not going to ever – sort of come up with a magic formula to get back to where they were in the 1950s, in Detroit's case with two million people and all the factories humming and all that, that in fact was going to remain a smaller city for many, many years to come, decades to come, and that we have to sort of take a whole different approach. It's not about showcase projects. It's about coming up with a way to be as a smaller 
but better, more sustainable, greener city. And so that's really what the book's about. It's not about how Detroit declined. It sort of it takes its current uh, position as a given and says, where do we go from here? So by covering urban redevelopment in Detroit for the Free Press, what were some of the most interesting stories that you covered regarding your beat? Well, I think it's really been, um, since I had the, the luxury of, you know, of a lot of time to look at this, I think the riverfront redevelopment has really been interesting. Uh, you know, when I came to Detroit in the 80s, um, Detroit had all these uh, cement silos and other industry on the riverfront. Now we're building a five-mile-long riverwalk, uh, you know, waterfront promenade. Um, that's one of the most impressive projects I've seen. Um, I think the emergence of Midtown, uh, where the uh, museums and Wayne State University and the hospitals are, uh, has been uh, really amazing. And I think the uh, the emergence of Southwest Detroit, where all the uh, Latino immigration is, as a really vibrant neighborhood, is pretty amazing. So I think those three neighborhoods show that uh, revitalization is possible, uh, not always by you know adding huge amounts of new people, but simply uh, building on your assets and, and being sort of who you are. Uh, Midtown, uh, which is the home, you know, the cultural center and the home of students and so on, is completely different from southwest Detroit, which is the site of the Latino immigration. So two totally different neighborhoods, but both doing really well. So I know last year I covered a story about um, urban farming in Detroit. And, I, mm-hmm. and you know, having, having hosted a show and, and you cover issues in Michigan, as I do, um, I've, I found that the people that do stay in Detroit and in the area do some pretty innovative things. Can you talk about some of the innovative things coming out of Detroit that you've been able to, to see and, and cover? Sure. Uh, well, urban farming is pro- probably the one everybody talks about the most, and that's mostly in uh, in the realm of community gardening. That is uh, smaller plots, nonprofit, um, sort of a nonprofit model, uh, volunteer labor. Everybody growing the food to sort of give away to food banks or, or you know give away to neighbors free. And the big debate we're having right now is whether we're going to take this vast amount of vacant land that we have in Detroit and try to do some um, larger-scale commercial farming. And that's a tremendous debate with all all kinds of complex issues that get involved. Um, And we don't know how it's going to come out yet, but but there are several proposals on the table now to do larger-scale farming, not the sort of quarter-acre or tenth of an acre plots that you have with community gardening, but really 50 acres, 100 acres, 200 acres at a time. So that's very interesting. And then we're getting... um, all kinds of sort of uh, public art projects, and uh, somebody uh, uh, piled up some dirt and made a dirt bike motocross um, course track in, in the Corktown district, and sort of um, very interesting reclamations of vacant buildings to be art projects or or whatever nonprofit centers. So we're seeing all kinds of ways to address the vacancy in Detroit. The big issue right now is that there's so much vacancy that you really need to come up with some really large scale interventions to make it work. I think like, for example, large-scale urban farming or reforestation or large solar panel fields. And I think this is sort of an opportunity to reimagine what the city is going to be, as my book title says, Reimagining Detroit. Let's sort of not just try to revitalize a little bit, let's try to reimagine what a city what a city can be. So without further ado, would you be able to read an excerpt of your book, Reimagining Detroit, Opportunities for Redefining an American City for the Michigan Storytelling Segment? 
Sure, thank you. Um, this is from the uh, the introduction, and it talks about the need to um, accept that Detroit can be a better city, not just um, in spite of being smaller, but because it's a smaller city. So, many world-class cities are smaller than Detroit in terms of population. Seattle and San Francisco and Savannah in our own country, and Vancouver and Venice in other lands. To trade Detroit's reputation as a rust belt failure for the allure of one of those other cities wouldn't be such a bad trade. First, though, Detroit will have to embrace getting smaller as an opportunity, not a curse. That vacant lot we were holding for some hoped-for development, now maybe we can turn it into a community garden to help feed the neighborhood. That eight- or ten-lane thoroughfare that no longer carries the volume of traffic for which it was designed, now we can put it on a road diet, reducing automotive lanes by creating bicycle lanes, widening sidewalks, and running a transit line up the middle. The streams and wetlands buried generations ago to provide sewers for a growing city. Now we can rediscover these natural treasures, restoring the ecology to create a greener environment that's cooler in summer and healthier year-round. Year With the auto industry's collapse, we can foster a more entrepreneurial economy, nimble rather than sluggish. With city government broken, we can create new models of local leadership. All these things become possible when a city gets smaller. The challenge is to see beyond the heartache and grasp the opportunity. As Japanese poet Masahiri puts it, barns burnt down, now I can see the moon. Beautifully put. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was John Gallagher, author of Reimaging Detroit, Opportunities for Redefining an American City. John Gallagher, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And tonight on Exposure, we are highlighting the revitalization efforts going on in the Motor City. As we have mentioned on the show already tonight, urban farms are one of the ways Detroit is making positive use of its vacant land. Here's a story I did about urban farming in Detroit last summer. In Lansing's Urbandale neighborhood, a handful of volunteers get their hands dirty in the half-acre Urbandale farm project. The neighborhood is prone to flooding. There are vacant lots in the area, and development is limited. Like many places in Michigan, the area has also fallen on hard economic times. Retired MSU professor Linda Anderson is one of the founders of the Urbandale Farm Project. One of the reasons Urbandale was chosen for the location of the farm was to help out the community economically. Yeah, it certainly had to do with our knowing many people who lived around here were having to stretch their food dollars as far as they could. And we wanted to help make more healthy food available for them to purchase with those limited food dollars. She says the project hopes to sell the farm's produce at reduced prices to residents of Urbandale. But, Anderson says, urban farming is not a new idea. I think urban agriculture has come and gone at different times in history. It comes back in full force when there are economic downturns. Another reason the farm project started in Urbandale is to provide access to fresh produce in an area considered a food desert. And this is Gratiot Avenue. This is one of the main arteries in Detroit. That's Christine Hahn from MSU Extension in Detroit. She works with the Garden Resource Program, a program that works with various agricultural groups in the city. And um, I don't know if you've noticed, but in all our travels, have you seen any grocery stores? Fast food restaurants, gas stations, and liquor stores lined the road. But all day, we didn't see a single grocery store. 
Roughly half a million people in Detroit live in a food desert. Residents have to travel twice as far to access healthy food than the junk food offered at corner stores. Like Urbandale, Detroit has taken advantage of its vacant lots and has tried to create access to healthy food for communities. Urban farming has really grown in Detroit. Han says when she started working with the Garden Resource Program in 2003, there were 80 community gardens in Detroit. Now there are over 1,200 with the program. One of the urban farms in the Garden Resource Program is called Earthworks. Earthworks has been around for 13 years. When driving up to Earthworks, we passed a plot of land with around two dozen volunteers harvesting crops. Han says Earthworks not only provides food for the local residents, but has transformed the community. And these houses have also improved phenomenally. All these houses used to be much more rundown. Daryl Howard has lived in the neighborhood for over 40 years, and has seen it go through many phases. Well, I've seen uh, a decline in the housing, but I've seen、uh, a growth in the people, and their attitudes have gotten better, you know, over the years. You know what I'm saying? Because it's pretty tough. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I grew up during the '67 riot. You know, when I seen a lot of things barbed wired up, and, you know, stores being burned up. It's pretty tough. Despite the hardship Howard's neighborhood has faced, he says being involved in urban farming has given him a better attitude on life. He volunteers at Earthworks five to six days of the week. He donates a lot of his produce to the Capuchin Soup Kitchen, which is affiliated with Earthworks. Across town at River Rouge Park is a two-acre farm called D Town. D Town is part of the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Samuel Newsom is a volunteer at D Town and a few other urban gardens throughout the city. Newsom says urban agriculture can help Detroit's economy. The automobile there'll never be as many people working for the automobiles as、uh, in the past, you know. Because since 1910, people came from the south up here to be seeking a better way of life, and that better way of life is fading away. You know, it's, it's, it's time to、uh, do something different. You know, we can't depend on the automobile industry alone. You know, we got to make it a make it a mixture, you know, automobile and the community garden. You know. I think it's gonna turn Detroit around. Like I said, I was saying, from Motown to Growtown, and、uh, hey, and it's, it's catching on, you know. At D Town Farm, Newsom teaches Detroit youth how to garden. He says many kids in Detroit don't even know what many vegetables even look like. Besides providing education and nutrition, Newsom hopes gardening will give his students a sense of responsibility and purpose. Well, these kids, they, now they. they Go go to the supermarket. We think this is where the、uh, food comes from, you know. And I think we should get more kids, kids involved in it, because I、uh, I think it, it would change some of these kids' life as far as、uh, their outlook on life, you know. Okay, everybody ready?、Yeah. And that's what's starting to happen here on the east side of Lansing. How many do we put in? Two. Urbandale Farm Project co-founder Linda Anderson is teaching four boys from the neighborhood how to plant seeds for the first time. It is just the beginning of Lansing's urban farm, a project designed to help build the social and economic structures in this neighborhood through urban agriculture. Reach into your cup, get two seeds, and imagine these seeds growing into a big flower that's going to be taller than the grown-ups that are standing around here. Can you believe that's going to happen? This tiny little seed. For impact exposure, I'm Emily Fox. 
now back to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. And tonight on the show, we are talking about Detroit. And up next is an interview I did with Jill Jack. She's an award-winning artist from the Motor City. I hear that you've recently been on tour with Bob Seger. <laughs> yes. How was that? It sounds funny. I mean, it just sounds so surreal. It was about as surreal as it sounds. Um, it was a dream come true. The venue was huge. Uh you know, and everything was storybook. We we did our sound check, and Bob sat down and listened to our sound check, and then came in. Uh, we were at the palace, and called me into his dressing room and said, "How about going to London with me in six days?" You know, he, he liked what we did, and um, just great. I mean, I was ready, I was happy, and the band was on, and and we rocked the house. It was great. How'd you get that gig? Well, a lot of lobbying, that's for sure. I mean. Um, I have people who know his people and then um, basically walked into their offices and said, you guys need some estrogen on this bill. (laughs) 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 And I just, you know, they know who I am. They're not, um, I've been in Detroit and a major, major musician in Detroit. I've won the most Detroit Music Awards and, um, you know, definitely got the attention and they know I have a great fan base. Even that night. The fan base, I asked, you know, how many people are Jill Jack fans here? And there was quite a few. And then I asked how many Jill Jack virgins were in the house. And there was quite a few of those, too. So <laughs> by the end of the night, everybody, we were all one one big happy family. So it was cool. So have you been performing in Detroit your whole life? Yes, yes. Um, I've been at this now for 20 years. I have my own record company. I have seven CDs out working on my eighth. And traveled um you know i i do everything from acoustic solo to full nine-piece band and um love what i do it's a lot of work uh you need a lot of perseverance and you know i've taken a lot of shots but um you know i i i'm not me without it so i unfortunately it's a curse sometimes but um i keep doing it till i can't do it anymore how would you describe how detroit's music scene has changed over the past 20 years you know, I, I have seen it evolve for sure. Um, but the great thing about being a Detroit musician is it is a melting pot. And, and I think that that's helped me write what I write. I write all my own material. And, you know, people say, well, you know, what do you write? Is it country? Is it folk? Is it, you know, and that's what, you know, it's Americana. And, and I truly think that that has come from the blues, from the Motown, from the you know, get right down to folk, um, you know, I think it's all influenced me. So I think, though, the community has really grown and worked together where it kind of used to be a dog-eat-dog. When I first started working, you felt like everybody was kind of stepping on each other, but now I see it more as a group team effort, and it's really cool that we all try to support each other now because it's a tough industry, you know. So without further ado, would you be willing to perform a song for us? Sure. I'll do a a song because we were talking about northern Michigan earlier. So I'm going to do this song. I wrote this on Torch Lake, and there's nothing like being on the lakes in Michigan. And this is actually, I've gotten emails from New Zealand and all over uh, Europe. People are like, we want to come to northern Michigan now after they've heard this song. So here we go. Can you find the 
back home and the crickets play the violin wings and the children still believe in dreams and there's not one single person feeling alone You're tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox. In the studio is Jill Jack. So, Jill, where do you usually perform? Everywhere. <laughs> I don't limit myself, and I definitely don't stay in one place very long. Um, I think I try to reach out as much as possible. And um, my daughter's in college now, so I actually could get out and hit the road. The minute she went to college, I went to Europe. So <laughs> And, uh, you know, I mean, I was playing all along, all over the place, but I, you know, I didn't want to tour too much, you know, without her. When she was little, we tossed her in the back and she came with us. But, you know, as she got older, she wanted a life, too. I kept trying to talk her into staying on a tour bus, but she wasn't having it. Um, But so you name it, if you look at my website, jilljack.com, I'm scheduled from here to 2012 and... Uh, just 2012. Um, wow. Yeah, actually. And there's somebody already booked me for 2013. So, <laughs> but it's good. It's, it's what I love to do. And, um, it seems to get all types of age groups and, uh, I just, um, 
happy happy that I can continue to do it. And where can people find you this summer? This summer, like I said, go on on my schedule. Um, I don't know it by heart. I pretty much look for the week and then know where I'm at. But we'll be touring. We'll be also in Nashville um, this summer. And um, I'm hoping that Seeger goes back on tour in the fall and that we get that opening slot. So that's that's one of my things. But we'll we'll be all over the place. Memphis, you name it, we'll be there. How was how was performing for Bob Seeger? I mean, was I mean. Do you think that you'll be able to do that connection again and, and perform for him? Oh, yeah. I mean, I hope so. They, The management was extremely happy with what I did. And, and one of the reasons they said it was because I wasn't making it all about myself. They said that I was so excited that Seer was playing and that... W- that I understood my job. My job was to get the crowd going. And if they liked me... You know, during that period of time that I did a double duty, I did, you know, for myself, that was great. And obviously for Seeger, we got them pumped up and they were ready to roll. So, so I mean, I think when I think of Bob Seeger, I think of Michigan and you just sang your song about northern Michigan Uh Um, and you're saying you're going going on tour. Do you generally like to stay within the state or do you like to branch out? Oh, I definitely like to branch out and more and more. I mean, Michigan has been so supportive of my career. That's the only reason I've been able to stay in it is because they've supported, they show up at every show, we sell out, we do well, and they buy my CDs. So it's it's phenomenal. But, um, you know, obviously your fans want to see you grow and you want to see yourself grow and hit markets so that you don't get so comfortable. It's great to sit in your backyard and have people applaud, but when you got to go out, like when we played London with Seeger, you know, I said, Dorothy, we ain't in Kansas no more. I mean, these people didn't know me from Adam. And so I had to really rock it out. I had to prove myself, you know, because it was, they'd never heard any of my material. So it's important for me not to get comfortable. Challenge and facing fears and really getting out of the box is how I live my life. And um, I, I, I would get stale. It wouldn't, it wouldn't do me any good to just stay in Michigan. Not at all. But I love Michigan, and I do a lot for Detroit. I wrote a campaign for Detroit this year. Uh, it's a commercial called um, I'm a Believer. And uh, we do um, a lot of charity work, and we do. I get my fans out there. We're painting fire hydrants and cleaning up the city, and uh, I work with the choirs in Detroit and just really trying to support my city while still getting my feet wet in other states. So. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, in the studio is Jill Jack. She'll be performing at Pump Stock. It is an outdoor music festival featuring American Roots music. It'll take place Saturday from noon until 6 p.m. at Bailey Park in East Lansing. Jill Jack, thanks so much for joining us tonight. It's really nice to meet you, Emily. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You're listening to Impact Exposure. You are tuned to Impact Exposure. I'm your host, Emily Fox, and on the phone is Eric Prue. He um, is the filmmaker who is making a film called Lemonade Detroit, and he is on the phone to talk about the film. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So talk a little bit about this film uh, and why you decided to make it. Um, Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, Lemonade Detroit is... um, I actually had a, a really uh, profound realization about why I'm, I'm making it. Um, but first, to tell you what it is. I, um, uh, you know, I, I think like a lot of Detroiters, um, which I am not 
one of, by the way. Uh, I live uh, I live in Boston, but like a lot of Detroiters, I was um, I'm sort of sick of uh, sick of hearing one viewpoint and sick of seeing um, what popular media does to um, sort of feed on itself and and. Uh, portray portray things in a way that they think will sell newspapers or or get ratings, um, and wanted to tell uh, another side that was equally dramatic and equally uh, equally interesting and and no less more um, no less more sexy or 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 you know. Um, you know, I like to say that, that I'm trying to make hope as optimistic as a, as a train, you know, hope as appealing as a train wreck. <laughs> you know, get people to, to rubberneck on something that's a really positive story instead of something that's, you know, inherently negative. Um, and so Lemonade Detroit is about what the whole city is doing to uh, re-identify itself uh, uh, after not really having one single industry to call its own anymore. Um, it's, it's just sort of solution, sort of a bunch of different uh, people doing a bunch of different things that are, are, are redefining uh, redefining the area. Um, and, you know, what what kind of got me to this point and, and made me interested in, in telling this story is that uh, um, I ended up went out there about a year and a half ago to screen my first film, and which is about people who lost their jobs and reinvented themselves. And I thought that it was uh, – I thought that I was going to have to um, – you know, I, I don't know. I just I had never actually I had never been to Detroit prior to this, um, and and I had a certain set of expectations and beliefs going into the city, going into my first visit there, that were all proven wrong um, by the people that I met. And um, you know, this making this film, I, I've come to realize, is kind of my uh, uh, my penance for for those beliefs and sort of you know how ignorant could I be. Um, I need to. I need to just kind of make up for that uh, for those thought patterns, and um, that's where I am today. So, talk about your perception of Detroit. I mean, as you said, you're from Boston. Um, before you yeah. made your first movie, which is called Lemonade, and now you're making a film called Lemonade Detroit. Um, talk mm-hmm. about the perceptions you had about Detroit before you came to film your first film, and and now working on a film about Detroit and about the hope that the city has and the positives that are, things that are coming out of it. What are your perceptions now? So going in, uh, going into Detroit, I think my perceptions were shaped um, largely the way I think most of the people in, in the rest of the country feel or, or learn about Detroit, and that's from you know seeing seeing you know the Dateline story and, and hearing the census numbers as, as as portrayed on Huffington Post and all the things that um, all all the ways that people get their information were the ways that I got mine, and were not, not being from there, I never. Thought to dig any deeper. I mean, I, I, my, my impression of Detroit was that um, you know not only was there a dwindling, dwindling population, but there was no population, and that not only was there uh, you know uh, some some uh, problems with with crime and poverty and, and and all that stuff, but that it was you know uh, you know might as well might as well been filled with like zombies and cannibals. You know, I mean, from my my impression was that I was going to go into this like this this beyond bleak situation that that the rest of the world or the rest of the the that the media seems to portray um when i got there and you know showed showed lemonade for the first time to a group of people who had just lost their jobs or were about to lose their jobs about 400 people in total in the room um they every one of them was um had this real 
uh, inexplicable optimism for what was coming. And I, I, I didn't understand that coming in. It was just sort of it, it sort of slapped me in the face the same way, you know, hearing bad numbers slap you in the face. But this this energy in this room was was profound. And um, and that's been my impression since. And the more I go and the more people I talk to and the more sort of little inner pockets of, of, of energy and little businesses and, and neighborhoods that are turning around, more the more those that pop up. Um, the more, uh, the more I believe this, and the more I, I, every time I go into Detroit, I leave completely fired up <laughs> about uh, about what's possible there and, and what's possible for the film. Talk about the people and the projects that you highlight in your documentary called Lemonade Detroit. Sure. Um, well, there's there's uh, there's about right now there's about six or seven people that are that I made uh, first time I went in just to, to film the trailer. And then I used that trailer to try to generate funding for the short, which is where it is right now. And now I'm using the short to try to generate more funding for the feature. And um, as of right now in the short, you know, there are uh, the stories we tell are um, Reverend uh, Reverend uh, Barry Randolph of the Church of the Messiah and all the inc- uh, and, um, on the east side who are just doing some incredible, incredible work. And, and, you know, you look at it, you look at somebody like him and you think, oh, you know, it's just, it's just He's a he's a community organizer, and it's like you know he's making these little changes. One you know pockets of you know people who are you know seeing better days and they're down on their luck. But he goes so far beyond that. The, the difference that he's making is is incredible. Um, Joe Ferris uh, from Motor City Denim, who you know was on Project One Way a couple of years ago, um, and left his job as a designer in New York to come and partner with a struggling um, auto supply manufacturer because um, he had all the machines, and now they're making jeans out of a out of, from a from a factory that once made stuff for the automotive industry. Um, Chaz Miller, who's an incredible artist, um, uh, started the Artist Village, and you know takes takes kids off the street and, and, and gives them skills to, to succeed in the art world and, and give them an explore, give them something to do uh, to explore their talents um, that they didn't know that they had. Um, you know, there's, of course, you know, Phil Cooley and Claire Nelson and, and a lot of the people who are doing doing the work that has been reported on so much and are doing such great stuff there. Um, you know, and there are so many more stories I want to tell. Every time I come in, I learn about something else, another story I want to tell, but you know, there's only so many things you can do in a in a nine-minute feature. Right. Now, talk about um, how your film is funded. You describe it as crowdfunding. How does that work? Yeah. So, um, right now, um, people can buy... Uh, there's... In 24 seconds... In one second of, of film, there's 24 frames in a standard second um, of film. And over the course of a 90-minute feature, that... that you know, multiplies out to about 130,000 frames. And all those, so the way that um, this is being crowdfunded is all those frames are for sale. Um, they can all be sponsored for $1 at a time. And um, and, and so far, uh, we've been able to um, get about 45, almost 50,000 frames um, sponsored for a dollar each. And um, and that's you know and they all get in exchange those people get producer credits on the film so they actually and, and the end credits on the movie you know and right now there's you know um, several you know I think there's up to 1,400 or so individual producers and they all get actual producer credit on the film both on the end credits and on IMDb 
Um, and I just found out that this, uh, you know, this qualifies for a world a world record against world record for the most amount of producers in a single film. <laughs> so why did you decide <laughs> to fund um, your documentary, Lemonade Detroit, this way? Uh, for, for reasons. Um, I think it's really important for me to make, um, as an outsider, as somebody from not, not from Detroit, um, it's really important for, for for me and the film to be accepted, um, and to feel, you know, for people to have a vested interest in in its uh, in its completion and the story that it tells. Um, you know, if I were to come in from, I know there've been a few a few projects that um, you know have promised one thing but delivered something else entirely, and I don't want to do that. I want to promise one thing and, and have people's, you know, people's interest in it be, be realized as the, as the sort of, you know, uplifting and, and, and flip side of the coin of the stories that have already been told. Um, so, and, and, and to get that, to get it funded, you know, one dollar at a time from, from, you know, a large portion of Detroiters um, is, is one way to, to accomplish that end. Uh, and the other reason is, um, you know, this is a, this is a film by, a relatively, not a relatively, but the, the, the very unknown guy, a filmmaker, who, um, you know, their Hollywood story, Hollywood videos aren't beaten, beaten down by the fun this thing. You know, and I, you know, it, it's not like the kind of film that, um, you know, or I'm not the kind of filmmaker that has a lot of cachet going in. It's not like you just say, you know, hey, hey, Miramax, I want to make this movie, give me money. You know, it's, I'm, 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 I'm doing this, um, you know, a little bit, a little bit to walk walk the walk that the film preaches um, and, and kind of do do things one dollar, one frame, uh, one story at a time. Well, excellent. And, and again, for our listeners, I'm talking with Eric Prue, and, and he's the filmmaker behind Lemonade Detroit. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, you, you highlight so many interesting people in your film. And being from, from Boston, you were saying that, you know, the... Everyone gets their, a lot of people outside of Michigan get their information about Detroit the same way through, you know, a certain, you know, media. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. from all the way from being from Boston, how did you find all these people that are kind of, they're reinventing Detroit and finding this little, these nuggets of gold within the city when you live far away and you're not necessarily connected with it on a daily basis? How did you find these people? Um, you know, a lot of it is visiting, um, but I'd say... Twitter and Facebook are incredible. Um, the connective tissue on social media is amazing. Um, I had, uh, I had, you know, for instance, the Reverend Barry story. I had just posted on Twitter, like, hey, I'd love to get this. I'd already shot the trailer. I'm like, I'd love to get this trailer in front of Mayor Bing. Does anybody know, have a connection to the mayor? And somebody replied to me, hey, I think my Reverend has a connection to the mayor. And he put me in touch with Reverend Barry. Well, once I talked to Reverend Barry and met him in person, I was like, okay, it's great that he may be able to connect me to the mayor, but his story needs to be in this film, right? So it's like, it's, it's sort of, you know, two degrees of separation from, from, you know, just somebody's tweet, you know? Um, and that, I would say, I mean, largely just me, me coming and talking to people and also, um, you know, just, just the, just the incredible impact that uh, social media has. 
And and I also understand that um, now you're getting some companies like I believe Blue Cross Blue Shield that are that are now backing your film and and will match um, you know individual contributors you know their frame by frame payment. Yeah. And are getting that was, behind uh, Blue that. Cross Blue Shield, yeah, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and um, Quicken Loans did uh, limited time um, you know matching for like X amount of time. We will match. We will match you know dollar for dollar. Um, and that that was uh, the you know, at the end of December and early January. So those were two two separate programs that um, that are over. But um, uh, those are certainly things we're we're still on the hunt to to find. And and do you know have any general idea of when your film will be finished and open to the public? You know, the short will be done. The fifteen so we're doing a fifteen minute short, and that is in the process of being mixed in color cricket as we speak. That should be done in the next week or two. And how that gets seen is yet to be determined. But um, it will be it will be online for sure. Um, in one way or another, whether it's on Hulu or Snag Films or, or some other medium that people can just watch it, uh, that's the that's the immediate plan and um, uh, for that. And then in terms of the feature, um, you know, the, the timeline has been uh, end of the summer, early fall. Um, that is still possible, but uh, you know, the, the, it's all a matter of um, of getting the rest of those frames sold. Well, on the phone is Eric Prue. He is the filmmaker behind the documentary called Lemonade Detroit, which shows the hope in the city and the beauty of Detroit that's happening right now in our largest city here in Michigan. So, Eric Prue, thanks so much for joining us tonight, and best of luck for the, with the film. And again, for more information on the film, you can go to LemonadeDetroit.com. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye. Now back to Impact Exposure. Tonight on Exposure, we are talking about all of the efforts going on in Detroit to bring it back to life. And up next is a feature I did about an artist in Detroit that is trying to brighten the Motor City one brush stroke at a time. It's a sunny afternoon in Detroit. Cars drive by with windows rolled down. Groups of people are chatting and laughing with one another on the sidewalk. On this particular block, many of the buildings are covered with murals, some big, some small. On the side of one building are the words Revitalize Detroit in elaborate lettering. In addition to the paintings, colorful wood carvings of animals and butterflies line the street and hang from trees. But this area didn't always look so welcoming. It was rough. I mean, it was, you know, I got carjacked over here in 19, I think it was 99. That's Chaz Miller. He's the guy behind Public Artworks. That's Works with a Z. It's a nonprofit organization based in Old Redford, a working-class neighborhood in Detroit. Miller's mission is to revitalize Detroit by painting murals across the city. He's only been painting here for a few years, and he's already seeing a difference. And there would be so many people running up to you to sell you drugs, prostitution. It was just bad. The alley smelled bad. Now, literally, at nighttime, we have kids playing in the alley. Miller grew up in Detroit. After high school, he moved away to Ohio to go to art school and work in the commercial art industry. He moved back in 2007 and says the city looked dark and gray and wanted to give it color. He started on little projects like painting homes and bathrooms, but eventually he wanted something more. Miller decided he would dedicate his time to painting murals and focus his efforts in Old Redford. Miller says art has helped this area come to life by creating a sense of pride. He says his murals have even brought in new businesses. So you want to create a place, a sense of place, and then that's actually how you start rebuilding the community with the art because now 
with that care, people feel like, okay, somebody's taking pride, somebody cares about this neighborhood, now maybe I'm willing to invest. So now we have five, over five new businesses that are open up on this immediate area. But to no surprise, not everyone in this neighborhood thinks art can save Detroit. Paul Bologna owns a barber shop just a few doors down from Miller's studio. He's been working here since the late 1950s. He says thousands of kids used to come from the suburbs to watch movies at the historic Redford Theater while their parents shopped at the many businesses that lined the street. He says that's not the case anymore. Bologna says while he has noticed the murals, he doesn't think art can bring in revenue to the city like businesses do. It's better than it needs to be a place a little more cleaner. The people is different than they were there before. But uh, still, it's not bringing it up to what it used to be. It will never be what it used to be. David McRae grew up in Old Redford. He's an intern at Detroit Hope Community of Christ, a church nearby. I caught up with him after he was getting a tour of Miller's studio with other church members. He thinks Miller's paintings have made a difference. So yeah, I definitely appreciate all the artwork and it's uplifting to those people who typically feel that Detroit is down. You know, people are sad, no jobs and all this and that. And these people are like, you know what, it's okay. Beyond all the garbage and all the downtrodden people, it's okay because we care. And I get all of that, everything I just said, from just seeing these murals around every now and then. So I really do appreciate it. McRae believes that seeing art around the city gives people hope, and revitalization happens one step at a time. Chaz Miller, the guy behind the painting, says his next art project is to create a series of large murals on four- and five-story buildings in downtown Detroit. He wants people in the area to help out and paint what he calls love letters to Detroit across the city. For Impact Exposure, I'm Emily Fox. Now back to Impact Exposure. This is William Lankford. I'll be reciting a poem entitled, Meditations on Detroit Bread. Perhaps Detroit's doctors use murder mittens to extricate Detroit's born and bred from their mother's wombs like bakers do bread from menstrual ovens wrought in iron. It would explain the veneer of the survivors. Here, the cock's crow is a gun cocked at the business end of the law's long arm, or the fed-up end of those who end up dressed as orange barrels or zebras. It is fitting that they fail to blend in our jungle, this sweet city, this sweet science. Rumble, young men, rumble. Dodge the uppercut from the exodus of the upper crust. It's stick and move. It's stick or move from here. So strike teachers, strike union. No ding of the bell, not down for the count. This is the capo aria, the head of our song, and I am its libretto. I want a Detroit poem that doesn't sound like this. I want a Shane Park Shaka Khan Soul Train Line Detroit poem. I want a late night bite at American Coney Island Detroit poem. I want an old man two-step jazz groove Detroit poem. One that sounds like Castec High. One that looms light green in the dawn. Spirit-like. A Joe Louis fist fighting back media limelight. This popular consensus derived from our census that tells us nothing can grow here. I did. And I do. When a phoenix sings a night mood melody, I grow. When a D-dot bus stops for a straggler, I grow. When a politician chooses power over principle, we grow. I want a Detroit poem that sounds and smells like the Eastern Market. These apples grew ripe here. These flowers took root here. 
Compress our woes into nightly news in Detroit. Let's take back our daylight. City pride, high rise, Penobscot, New Year's bottle pop, absent of gunshots, good cops, river walks, and these chalk outlines are no longer the shapes of bodies. They're gator-toed Sunday shoes treading new ground. They're curb feelers letting us know it is in reach. They are the orange hollow of a basketball falling from a boy's hand. He knows he can be more than this. They are the shape of a river wrapped around our people. Lean in close. It's got something to say. Detroit, I love you. And for the Michigan Storytelling segment, that was William Lankford. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 